Good morning. So we're continuing our series entitled Draw Near, which is a study in the book of Hebrews. Um, And as we've been saying, the book of Hebrews is written to converted Jews, Jews who had come to faith in Jesus Christ. And, and they were starting to fall back into their legalistic ways. They were, they, were continuing, they were moving back into what they believed made them righteous. And it was a sense of righteousness that came from a historical perspective, from what they understood, what they grew out of. And the author of Hebrews is saying to them, guys, I want you to understand there is a new way in Jesus Christ. There is a new way that Jesus Christ created for us. And and that new way isn't something that is disconnected from the old way. It isn't disconnected from what we understood. It is the natural conclusion. It is the natural progression of what everything has been about. What, what, What Darren just read was this idea of this picture, this, this, this painting of the, of the tabernacle, of the tent, of the different elements that were there. Because he's looking at him and he's saying, I want you to know that this is pointing to who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ came to do. Do you remember last week we talked about that? It was, it was, our, it was, our, initial, it was our initial introduction to the, to the book of Hebrews talking about the tent the tabernacle that was established by Moses, where they'd go in and they would worship, where they would go in and they would do their sacrifices. Specifically last week, we talked about two elements of that. Uh, the first being the, the presence, the, 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 the location of the, the altar of sacrifice. That as they would come into the tent, as they'd walk in, the very first thing they would see would be this altar upon which the sacrifices would be made and the sacrifice would be made for the sins of the people. That they were confronted immediately with the fact that they needed sacrifices for their sin, that they stepped in and they understood that they were sinners. And we talked about the second place in the, in the tabernacle that was referred to by the author of Hebrews, which, which was the Holy of Holies, that there was a place where the presence of God would be. And what we mentioned last week is both of those were meant to teach us something about what was to come in the new covenant. Both of those were to teach us where we are right now, that we were individuals, we are individuals, we as human need the sacrifices because we're sinners. And that without the move of God, without the move of Jesus Christ, without the presence of Jesus Christ coming and doing what he did, you're separated from the presence of God. But the new covenant provided the eternal sacrifice to cleanse us of our sin and gave us entrance into the very presence of God. So as I said last week, it was this introduction to this picture, to this foreshadowing of what the new covenant would be. And what we just read here in, the cha- in chapter 9 is the author of Hebrews continuing that picture. What he does is he's walking through the tabernacle and he's giving us an idea that each element here points to something that we see in the new covenant. He says, for a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of gold overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak of in detail now and speak in detail. And he's saying there's even more detail that we could talk about that is foreshadowing or showing us about what Jesus Christ would do through the new covenant. And we keep reading, he, he goes on for several more verses describing many of the details of, of the tabernacle. Each description is meant to show that yes, 
There was a structure and yes, there was a pattern, but he is saying all, is, all of it is simply there to reiterate the declaration that he made in chapter eight. He's showing all of this, all of the description, all of the, all of the elements of the tabernacle, of the holy places, of, the, of where the sacrifices were made, where the center of their worship. He was saying all of this is just to reiterate to you what I just said at the end of chapter eight. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is to vanish away. So he's saying all of this stuff was pointing to something, but it fades away because the new has come. It vanishes because the new has come. The point of all the descriptions in chapter nine and even in chapter eight of the tent, the tabernacle, the, the lampstand, the holy place, the altar, the holy of holies, the 10 commandments, on and on and on is simply to say they were pointing to something better. That all of these elements are shadows, they are signs pointing to what would be discovered in the new covenant. That the new covenant is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, his promise to Jacob, his promise to David, his promise to the Israel nation, but even more than that, his promise to all humanity would be fulfilled in the new covenant, in the work of Jesus Christ. So the reality is, looking at the new covenant promised by God to, all, to us all, in that we can see God's intent for us all, his heart for us all, God's very hope for us all. What I'm saying is from the very dawn of time, God has been pointing through the old covenant to the new. And what we understand it by looking at the new covenant is what does God's heart say to his people? What does God's heart say to us? That's why the real point of all the descriptions are found in the words of the author of Hebrews at the tail end of chapter eight, as he introduces the description of the tabernacle. Now I want you to hear this again. These are the words of God himself. So what the author of Hebrews is penning here is, he, is, is, he's, is he's rewriting what we see from the prophets of old as they quote God himself. So again, what I'm saying is what we are talking about here is the new covenant, which is God's intention for us. And what I'm about to read for, to you is God's own words explaining to you what the new covenant's about. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, say, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. This is God's plan from God's lips. This is God's heart towards us as he explains it to us. Now I want you to walk through this with me because 
Each step, I think, provides an important insight into the covenant relationship available to you today and the covenant relationship that you enjoy today if you're a child of God, if you're a follower of Christ. It says, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Now, the term here that's used, and it says the house of Israel is, under, is, is meant to be understood in kind of a generic way. It's meant to be understood as, as these are God's chosen people, that it is the descendants of Abraham. And when, he, when they use this idea and they said the house of Israel, he's, he's not meaning to restrict it. He's not meaning it to be for those people who are the, the direct line of Israel, but he's opening that up to the idea of simply the chosen people of God. Now, as I said earlier, as he's writing this, what the, what, what, what the author of Hebrews would be intending, what Christians would have understood in this way, is he's saying, listen, those of us who believe in Jesus Christ are the natural progression of this people of Israel, of the promise of God, of God's chosen people. That it is now at a point where it, it isn't restricted to a bloodline. That, that the covenant the Lord declares here is one that becomes available not according to bloodline, but according to faith. That we become the natural progression of what all of the old covenant has been saying and what all of the promise of Abraham was. We become that. The initial promise to Abraham was that, that, that he would be a, a blessing to all nations. This is where we see that door opening up to how it is not bloodline that it's not simply being from Israel. This is the declaration that we see in John 1.13, where he says, not by blood, but by faith. This becomes evident in the book of Acts. When we, we go to the book of Acts and you see the story of where, where Peter ends up going to Cornelius' house and he preaches the gospel to the Gentiles and the spirit comes on them. And from there they go, listen, the promises is not just for the bloodline of Israel, but it's for everyone who believes. We see this very thing uh, expounded on uh, extensively by Paul, specifically in, in the book of Romans. Paul, who is the apostle to the Gentiles, he speaks about over and over and over again about how, how the children of God are not now simply those who are of Israel, but those who believe in faith in Jesus Christ. And, and we see it declared definitively by Peter when he writes to, to both the Jews and the Gentiles that make up the church in Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and other parts. And, and what you understand that is that this, is, this was a, a mixed race churches. Gentiles and Jews coming together, having faith in Jesus Christ. And Peter writes this to them. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So when he makes this declaration, he says that the covenant is for the house of Israel. It's not meant to be only those who have that bloodline, but those of us who step into this place where we are the chosen people of God. He developed this new covenant and all of us, all of us have this available to us. He developed this new covenant and all that we are about to discuss is available to you. 
is available to you today. And he says, for this is the covenant I will make, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Whenever I read this, it reveals something incredibly beautiful about the nature of the new covenant that would be incredibly foreign to the children of the old covenant. This new covenant will usher in a devotion to God that is not imposed by laws and all that that implies, but it will be birthed in the heart of man by the Spirit of God. His declaration here is, listen, listen, I will put my laws on their minds and I will write them on their hearts. The contrast he's showing here is to the laws that were written in stone, to the laws that were written on, on papyrus that are, that are, that are written in, in the books that say, do this and don't do that. Give this and don't give that. Touch this and don't touch that. Eat this and don't eat that. He's saying, I'm not writing the laws anymore where we're going to impose from, from outside what you have to do, what you can and can't do. But by the Spirit of God, I'm going to write on their hearts. I'm going to birth in them an understanding of who I am and call them into relationship to walk with me. Paul describes this in 2 Corinthians 3.3 this way, that it's written not with ink, but with the Spirit of of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human hearts. Do you see here the instrument of the new devotion? The instrument of living in God, following God, knowing God. It's not a pen written on paper. It's not carved into stone. It is the very spirit of the living God writing on our hearts and on our minds what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ, what it is to follow God, what it is to be in him. It is God's spirit birthing in us something. Not a life, not an idea, not a, not a formula imposed from outside. In fact, Paul goes, goes on in verse six to describe this new covenant as, as not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The reason this would be so foreign to the children of the Old Covenant is because instead of having the Spirit of God dwell in the Holy of Holies beyond your reach, he dwells in the heart. Instead of having the knowledge of God be something outside that you, that you pursue through, through ritual, you have, it has been brought to life in you by the Spirit of God. It is the living God illuminating truth, his word, into your heart, into your mind, and responding. True salvation is not the result simply of of study and discipline and adherence to laws, but it is the result of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in each one of us that he does this relationally in a way that calls you lovingly to respond in the life you live. It's not about striving. It's not about striving. It's not about striving to live up to the law, but it's about abiding 
in the spirit of God. That's the switch. That's how this changes. For many of us, we see, we see Christianity or any religion in this view of religiosity, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. And this is what's changed. This is what the new covenant came to do. Listen, it's not about the striving and the law, but it's about having the spirit alive in you to follow him. This is us responding. And that, that really is further revealed in, in the next line of our text. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Now, when you read this, you can't misconstrue it. When he writes here and he, and he says, they won't teach each other, they won't need to say to their neighbors anything, they'll, they'll just know it. This, this obviously doesn't mean that there's no longer a need for teachers. The book of Hebrews is written to teach them about the Lord. Um, all of the epistles are written to teach us about the Lord. In fact, the Bible says that, that teachers are a gift from God to the church. So when he says here that, that, that there will come in the new covenant not a need for them to be taught or not a need for us to tell to our neighbors this th these things, he's not saying that, that in the new covenant there will be no place or need for teachers, but that each person in the new covenant will have an intimate and personal relationship with the true and living God, and God will be their teacher. Now, fundamentally, what does that mean? What are we saying as it relates to that? It's this. It's the same as what we talked about in the previous verse that we're talking about here. Ultimately, you do not come to understanding and knowledge of God apart from the Spirit of God. And so at the, at, the, at, the, at, the, at the center of this declaration is that the Spirit of God will be teaching you who he is. This is what Christ means in John chapter 6 when he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Do people, teach about, do people teach about Christ? Was Jesus teaching about Christ? Yeah, of course he was. But what his declaration here is, it is God who ultimately illuminates the truth into your heart. You don't come because you figured it out. You don't come because you're smart enough. You don't come because Tommy picked the right words to get you there. It's not about me teaching you into it. It's about me giving you truth and then the Holy Spirit will illuminate to your heart and that's what takes root. It's what's reflected in Jesus' words in John 14. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And it's what is meant by John in 1 John 2 when he says, but you have, have an anointing from the Holy One. And here he's referring to the Holy Spirit given to those who enter the new covenant. And you all know and, when he, and, and he, when he continues with these words, he continues with these words in verse 27 where he says, and as for you, the anointing, the spirit, which you received from him abides in, in you and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things. 
This is the work of the Holy Spirit that abides in us. It's what we've talked about in the past, that, that we, we don't have to go into the Holy of Holies because the Holy of Holies is in us. It is the Holy Spirit working in us. The two concepts expressed in, in verse 10 and 11 introduce to us this intimate relationship we have through the new covenant, through the Holy Spirit. As I said, the Holy Spirit saves us, not because we are the smartest or the most spiritual, and the Holy Spirit sustains us, not because we've figured it out, not because we've worked harder. What we each one of us needs to understand is that the primary central idea about the new covenant in our understanding, in our education, in our sustenance, is opening our hearts up to the work of the Holy Spirit in all of us. This is a gift given to us through the new covenant. But it's really the last line of God's description of the new covenant that exposes the central work of the new covenant. He writes and says, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sin no more. What is revealed in this is something we can never lose sight of. When God himself, and again, this is what we're reading, the words of God about the new covenant, when God himself speaks of the work of the covenant, when he reveals to us what is accomplished in the new covenant through Jesus Christ, to what does it ultimately lead? And I want to remind you again, this is God explaining to us what he's always intended. This is God explaining to us why he started this to begin with and what it was headed towards. What is it that ultimately God says the new covenant is about? I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sin no more. God here is saying the ultimate work of the new covenant is the ultimate eradication of sin for those who are the children of the new covenant. That, that he, because of the new covenant work of Jesus Christ, will be merciful toward iniquities and he will remember your sins no more. That all that he has been doing, that all that he has done, that all the work throughout the old covenant foreshadowing the new covenant, the work of Jesus Christ in the new covenant was always about one thing, was always headed to one thing so that God would forgive our iniquities and remember our sin no more. That's what it's always been about. That our heavenly father has said, listen, this isn't about me wanting to condemn you. This isn't about me wanting, wanting to send you to hell. This is about me wanting to see you saved from your sins. And understand something. When you, lay that along, when you lay that alongside our lives, when you lay that alongside our understanding of Christianity, about what it is all about, about what the book is written about, it has to lead you to something really important that many of us don't embrace. And it's this. Sin is a big deal. Sin is a big deal. 
For many of us, what we like to do is we, is, we in Christianity, we in, we, we in Christianity in a general sense, we in Christianity in a specific sense, what we want to do is we want to diminish the importance of sin. We, we have people, people going, you know, let's not talk about sin. And why do you guys always talk about sin? And we shouldn't be talking about sin. And it's just, why do you always got to condemn people and talk about sin? Let's just talk about things that are important, like, like just loving people and being nice to people and being kind to people. I mean, Jesus Christ came to teach us how to love people and be nice to people. It, it, it's, it's that, it's that hippie-go-lucky Jesus that everybody wants to teach about and, us, and wants us to embrace. Here's the reason why we talk about sin and here's the reason why we should talk about sin is because sin is a big deal. It's always been about that. In fact, when we talk about this idea of who Jesus is and what Jesus Christ came to do, what is he about? The ending place of God's description of the new covenant was it deals with sin. And in reality, the starting point of the old covenant was what? To deal with sin. This is why we talked about last week that the minute you walked into the tent, the first thing you saw was the altar there that was saying, we got to deal with your sin, people. Before you can go any further, we got to deal with your sin. The old covenant pointed to our sin. The new covenant deals with our sin. So sin is a big deal. And as I say, for many of us, we want to diminish Jesus Christ to just being this guy who's here to make us happy or to tell us to love each other. But sin is all over God's word and all over Christ's teaching. Nearly 800 times in the Old Testament, 300 times in the New Testament, sin is dealt with. 1,100 times. To give you context, do you know how many times in the New Testament you have instruction on helping the poor? This is what people are like, Jesus came to teach us to be nice and to help the poor. And, 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 and he did teach us to help the poor and to be nice to people. Do you know how many times in the New Testament we're instructed to help the poor? Six. 300 times in the New Testament, it talks about sin. Six times it talks about helping the poor. Jesus spoke about helping the poor three times in all of the gospels. But if you just look at the book of Matthew, he speaks about sin 30 times. In fact, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. How many of you think Jesus is taking sin seriously here? Did you ever wonder what Christ's mission was when he came to the earth? Was it to teach us to just love each other? Was it teach us to be nice to each other? Was it teach us to help poor people? Well, the angel who foretold Christ's birth told Joseph this, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus was coming here to do what? Save his people from their sins. Jesus describes his earthly mission like this. He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Why does he say he came? To call sinners to repentance. 
And what was the purpose of his death on the cross? In 1 Peter, it says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. What are we left to conclude from all of these different passages? Jesus was born to save us from our sins. Jesus lived to call sinners to right to repentance, and he died to redeem people from sin. The entire work, the entire purpose, the entire identity of Jesus Christ is about dealing with our sin problem. It's a big deal. If you're going to talk about Jesus, if you're going to talk about his work, if you're going to talk about what he did, it has to center around the sin problem. The new covenant is meant to deal with the sin problem. We have to understand sin is a big deal. And when we diminish the impact of sin, we diminish the work of Jesus Christ. It's what he came to do. His death on the cross was about that. And so we have to understand that the new covenant is about dealing with man's sin through the sacrifice of Christ's life. The purpose of the new covenant was to deal with the very real problem of sin. In this, the word of God says, is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the replacement sacrifice for our sins. Now, before we examine how the new covenant deals with the very real, very big problem of sin, let me give you a brief understanding of what I mean when I, when I talk about sin. I think for many of us, the concept of sin has gotten somewhat convoluted and doesn't actually capture um, in our minds. It does, our minds don't actually understand rightly what I'm talking about when it comes to sin because so often what we like to do is we like to focus in in the same way as the old covenant did on the do's and the don'ts. Sin is about not doing this. It's about not doing that. It's about not doing this. It's about not doing that. Sin is about doing this, doing that, doing this, doing that. But I think what we have to understand is, is in, a, in a very very base level, at a very base place, ultimately sin is the manifestation of self-idolatry. Ultimately, what sin is, is us saying what I want, what I desire, what, what, what gives me pleasure, serving my wants, serving my needs, is what I will do. All the different expressions of that self-idolatry are kind of irrelevant. Here's the truth. Here's what sin is. You have a creator. You were created by God for his purposes. You were created by God to know him and to fellowship with him and bring glory and honor to him. When we in our humanity say, there is no God, I don't care about God, I'm not interested in God, I, I don't wanna do what God wants me to do, I don't wanna live the way God wants me to live, I don't wanna be an instrument of God the way he created me to be, I want what I want, that's sin. The sin is ultimately the declaration that all I care about is what I want and I ignore my God. All I care about is what, what, I, what, what gives me pleasure and I don't care about my creator. 
All I care about is what, the, is what I myself lust after and want to pursue. And whatever God thinks, whatever Jesus did, and whatever all that means, means nothing to me. That's at the core of this. It is ignoring the idea that you have a God. This is one of the reasons that I, I believe that so many people have to go out of their way to, to, to dispute the existence of God because if God exists, it requires a response. It requires you doing something with that reality. And in doing that, it means denying yourself. This, is, this idea, I think, is, is really revealed in Romans chapter one where Paul writes and says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to him, to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that, they, that have been made. So they are without excuse." You understand here that, 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 that as Paul writes this, he doesn't speak about specific actions. He doesn't speak about specific sins. His declaration here is, listen, the wrath of God comes against people for one reason, one reason only. They suppress the truth that there is God. And he says, he says what, what, what we can do is we can look around and we can see that this wasn't created by man's hands. That, 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 that this didn't come about just, just out of nothingness. This is what the fool says. The fool says in their heart, there is no God. What this is saying is it's saying, we, we deny the existence of God and I live for myself. Now, all the particulars as they flow out of that are kind of irrelevant. The specific manifestations of self-idolatry are kind of irrelevant. Maybe it's sexual sin or addiction or greed or rage or whatever it might be. But when we deny God, when we choose to serve our own desires instead of our rightful king, that is our sin. God created you for him. He has for you a purpose and a meaning outside your physical sensations. This is why there is no satisfaction. This is why all around us, we can find in the world a lack of contentment. Because you weren't created simply for your own physical sensation, but for God. And so he calls you to him through the work of Jesus Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why the prayer I encourage people to pray as they repent and confess devotion to Christ is this. Heavenly Father, I'm so sorry that I've chosen to live my life for myself. I repent of resisting you and rejecting you and living only for the things that I want and the things that, that I desire. And so in this moment, God, I lay my life down for you. I make you my God, I make you my Lord, and I pursue you from this day forward. Whatever you ask of me, whatever you call of me, I'm yours. Forgive me, Father, and receive me as your own. It's really not about sin. It's about selfishness. When the Bible tells me to do something, I do it 
not because of the law, but because of my God. When the Bible instructs me in something and I say, well, the word of God says this, it's not about the application of law, but it's about devotion to my heavenly father. This is sin. And the new covenant is here to free us from it. So sin is a big deal. And sin is the manifestation of selfish idolatry. So how does the new covenant deal with our sin? For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. What does the new covenant do with our sin? I actually love how John MacArthur explains it. Here is the capstone of the new covenant. Here is what men need more than anything else and what the old covenant pictured but could not give. The promise of the Old Testament is finally fulfilled. Under the old covenant, sins could never really be forgotten because they were never really forgiven. They were only covered, foreshadowing the anticipating true forgiveness in Jesus Christ. But for those who belong to his dear son, God forgets every sin. The point being made by the author of Hebrews is that the new temple not built, is not built with hands of men. That the new law, not written on stone, but on the hearts of men. That the new sacrifice, not made with the blood of bulls and goats, but the blood of the only begotten of the Father. That the new high priest, not the one who, whose own sins must be covered and whose ministry comes to an end, but who is ever perfect and ever interceding for us. In this has been created the new covenant, that absolutely and completely deals with the penalty, the pain, and the slavery of sin once and for all. It creates through the Spirit entry into the presence of God where we will find life and hope and purpose. Providing us this ability to set aside self-idolatry and know and pursue our meaning, and our purpose, that which we were created for. For those who receive Christ, our sins are remembered no more. They are separated from us as far as the east is from the west, and we are washed clean, as white as snow, to free us to live in Christ and to know our Father. The work of the new covenant was meant to finally deal with our sin and we can find total victory because of that. Not because of our sacrifices, but because of his. Not through working hard to overcome, but because the spirit is alive in us, teaching us and guiding us and protecting us. Not because we are perfect, but because we have been made perfect through his perfection. This is what it's all about. You can be free from it's the penalty of sin. You can be free from the power of sin. And if you are in Christ, you are free. You are free. You are free from your sin. There is no accusation that can be levied against you. For Jesus Christ, through the new covenant, has completed the work completed the work 
that God started in the old.